This is the Enthusiasts Guild, a podcast about wonderful and interesting things and the people who enjoy them. I'm Fletcher C. Finch. I'm Adam Zremski. And our guest today is Luisa Samaska. Luisa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a staff scientist at Cornell in a lab called the Cornell High Energy Synchrotron Source. And I've been doing experiments there since 2014, and I became staff there in 2017. Before that, I held a fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City in their Department of Scientific Research. So that was a really fun year. And my background is primarily in chemistry, but I've also studied fine arts and more recently a lot of art history. So a little bit of everything I dabble. As I understand it, you use very specialized x-ray equipment to study works of art and cultural materials. And you find out what was used to create those and what's in the hidden layers that may be beneath or behind something. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I would be thrilled to. X-rays have been used to study artwork basically since X-rays were discovered. You, you think of the famous picture of the hand being X-rayed. They were X-raying paintings not, not long after that. And when we think about X-rays, we usually think about the ones, you know, you take at the dentist to look at your teeth or the ones that you get if you have a broken bone. And the contrast in those images comes from differences in density where the X-rays are more likely to be absorbed by the denser materials and more likely to be transmitted through the lighter materials, which is why you wear a lead blanket when you get your x-ray done. But there are other ways you can generate images from x-rays, and that's more what I do. So I'll say a little bit more about that, and I hope it's not too technical. No, you've got a great starter explanation already. So in the measurements that I do, it's a little bit different than a radiograph. When x-rays get absorbed by atoms, they can actually cause the charges or the electrons in the atoms to rearrange. And when that happens, a second set of x-rays get emitted, and that's called x-ray fluorescence. Basically, an electron gets kicked out from the core of the atom, and so you have an ion, and another electron kind of falls down in energy to take its place, and that's what results in the second x-ray being emitted. So that's maybe more, more jargony than it needs to be, but th that's the general idea. X-rays come in, they interact with the atom, and another x-ray comes out. That's the x-ray fluorescence. It's different from a radiograph in the sense that when you take a radiograph, you get one picture all at once. With x-ray fluorescence, it's a point measurement. And so in order to build up, build up an image, you have to raster either the x-ray beam or the object back and forth to build up an image point by point. And the, the information that you get out of that is what elements are present. So like iron or lead or copper and mercury and all the different things in the periodic table. It tells you exactly how much is there and you get these maps. Just from, from one measurement, you get a map of each element that's present. And that's uh, really, really useful for artwork because a lot of artist materials contain metals, which XRF is really good at measuring. And this is something that you can do without harming the artwork or the material that you're working with? It's generally considered non-invasive. It is generating ions. It's not as invasive as, say, taking a sample out of, mm -hmm. like physically removing a sample. But there is some, I suppose, debate about how much X-ray dose objects should be exposed to over the course of their lifetimes. It really is sort of like people. You wouldn't want to sit in an x-ray machine for hours. That wouldn't be safe. 
but a small dose for a diagnostic purpose is considered worth the risk for the information that you get out. So it's sort of the same with, with artwork. Now, there's another type of x-ray that you also use or another type of scanning or imaging in addition to XRF? That's the main technique that's used for identifying materials. There are lots of different x-ray techniques. And at the lab where I work, x-ray fluorescence is actually only a tiny piece of the research that happens. There's a lot that's done with x-ray diffraction and scattering and other types of imaging. You can do radiography and tomography with our x-ray beams. It's, um, there's, there's just a huge amount that gets done. You're doing a lot of different things. Like you're not, are you just looking at art or is it you're doing all these other aspects with the x-ray imagery? So when I started as a staff scientist, I was focused on x-ray fluorescence work and it was kind of supporting all of the different research that happens with that technique. And my own personal research was kind of the art history part. And so I would do a little bit of that and a lot of all the other things, hmm. which is actually a pretty good balance because the cultural heritage projects take a lot of time to plan and a lot of time to accurately understand the data. And I mean, it's it's a lot to to process, not just the fact that it's a large data set, but then trying to interpret what the images mean with all of the stakeholders involved from the conservators to the curators to, well, me and my colleagues trying to understand what the, what the data actually means. So it's, those are, those are probably some of the most complicated measurements that we would do. Hmm. So they, they take, they take a lot of time and effort. So it's, it's good that we only do one or two of them a year. (laughs) (laughs) How did you find yourself going in this direction of what you're doing now and then also i think we want to also touch on the art aspect too but i guess the science field was that the primary thing you were looking to do so as an undergraduate i studied chemistry and fine arts so i've always had an interest in both fields but i didn't see it a way at the time to kind of combine those two things i just thought they were forever to be divided (laughs) and i had a professor uh, and one of my art professors when i was a senior tell me she heard about this program at the Getty Museum where scientists were studying artwork and didn't I think that sounded cool. And of course I thought it sounded cool, but I didn't really think that was like a real job anybody could do. I just kind of thought that that was for other people and I was never really going to get involved in that. It seemed too like big and far away. But I went, so I went to graduate school for chemistry here at Cornell and I was studying materials science, materials chemistry, organic semiconductors, and so flexible solar cells, electronics, and those kinds of things. Maybe the important thing to say about that is that it was it was also imaging. It was making point measurements and scanning around, so a lot like the x-ray measurements in that sense. I was using, I was using a tiny silicon needle with a charge on it to measure charges in, in these devices, kind of like a charged hair bends towards a static balloon, you can use the same principle to kind of measure how much this needle bends to measure where charges were stuck in devices. I was I was doing that. It was really interesting, but I didn't feel like I was super excited about the path that it was going to put me on when I finished my degree. And so I was looking, kind of looking for ideas about what I could do to have a more interesting transition out of my PhD. And 
I heard a lecture at the Johnson Museum at Cornell, and it was a conservator from the Morgan Library in New York. Her name is Peggy Ellis, and she gave this amazing talk about how when they study drawings in their library, they use chemical spectroscopy techniques that I'd heard of, like heard of and used and was very familiar with. And I got so excited hearing about this that I went up to her after her lecture and asked her about how I could basically become her. (laughs) um, She said, well, you're a chemist. If you'd like to get into this area, you should probably take some art history classes. And so I went back and I looked up what requirements you needed to get into art conservator school. I thought I wanted to go become a conservator and do the, you know, actually do the treatment of artworks like cleaning and in retouching and all of that kind of thing. And she was right. I needed, I had the fine arts, I had the chemistry, but I needed art history. And so I started taking art history classes as a graduate student while I was still working on my PhD. I took several different classes, but the one that really stood out was one at the Johnson Museum. Like my timing couldn't have been better. They had put together this amazing seminar where they had a loan of these 17th century Dutch paintings to the museum. And they knew that there were some interesting potential technical findings. And they had set up the opportunity to take some of those paintings to the synchrotron and do this x-ray fluorescence imaging. And because I had been taking art history classes, I think the professors were sort of like, that chemist should probably learn about this, have her go take the workshop and learn how to do the data processing. So I had kind of this leg up before the class started. I, I kind of understood the measurement before we even did it. But that semester, yeah, I got to visit the synchrotron for the first time. And we did these measurements that turned out more exciting than anybody had expected. They knew, so there, it was one of the cases where there was a hidden painting and they knew from a standard radiograph that there was something there. But what we actually uncovered was you know, actually three different compositions that, that we had only, we'd only known there might be one. Wow. It was super, super exciting, and I was completely hooked, and I just wanted to learn more about about that technique, and so I did a postdoc at the Synchrotron when I finished my PhD. My personal research was focused on doing cultural heritage work. I did the project on illuminated manuscripts and azurite pigments at that time, but yeah, that was what got me in the door. The artwork is what got me in the door there. I had I'd been on campus for years and never even set foot in the building, we, we've been talking about it a, a little bit. Can you explain what the synchrotron is? The synchrotron is sort of a forbidding looking building. That's what's going on above ground. This lab where I work is, it's, the synchrotron is basically a place where you go to get access to the smallest and brightest x-ray beams. Physically, it is a lab that is five stories underneath Cornell's track and soccer fields. It's a tunnel circular about half a mile all the way around and inside is a particle accelerator so that generates positively charged particles that get accelerated to near the speed of light and the charges are steered around this underground ring in super high vacuum with magnets and when the charges pass through special arrays of magnets called undulators because there's not enough jargon in this field. (laughs) You get an intense beam of x-rays emitted tangent to that ring. 
if that's hard to picture, you can think about kind of the charges are like a car driving around a ring and the x-ray beam is like the headlights of the car kind of pointing out from that ring as they go around, except close to the speed of light. The lab consists of experimental stations that are built on these lines tangent to the ring. And everything we do is in these lead-lined rooms called hutches. So in order to do an experiment, you kind of, you set everything up and then you close the doors. There's a flashing light and an alarm to let you know that the doors are being closed so that you should get out. (laughs) When everything is closed up, then you can bring x-rays into the room and run your experiment from outside. I had no idea that was at Cornell. That's crazy. Right? I didn't either. The lab where I am at, at Cornell, it was actually one of the first particle accelerators that was built anywhere. This, the lab was originally built, I think, in the 70s to do particle collision experiments. It's kind of evolved over time. What started your interest in art? I have always loved creating, so I really appreciate that side of things. I don't think I'm particularly talented at it, but I really, really enjoy it in part because I feel like it makes you look at things in a different way. And I feel the same way about art history. The experience of looking closely is just really different from the way we tend to process the world. I mean, normally you're taking in so much information all at once that you kind of blur out what's not essential. And so when you take the time to focus on one thing and see all of its details that yeah it's a different aesthetic experience and it's I just find that really fascinating in the art historical context when I'm looking closely you start to see how something was made you start to see traces of the people involved when I start seeing you know just these tiny tiny little brushstrokes on an illuminated manuscript for example I mean it just it gives me chills thinking about somebody making those little marks it just I feel connected to the person, you know, centuries through time. It's really, I find it really moving. So <laughs> that's, that's a main, that's a, that's a big attraction for me. I think the other reason is that just the, just the fact that we're surrounded by images all the time, you know, not everything from like banal things like advertising to like our dreams too, we're surrounded by images all the time. And I feel like the ability to, read an image is a really important part of literacy. If you can understand an image, then it is like reading. I think it would be nice if we spent more time on talking about those kinds of things too. I'm really attracted to that. I was wondering about, I guess, the appreciation you have for art, you know, once you've got that science, specifically, I guess, when you're studying a painting, uh, say the the exit from the theater appreciation sounds like it grows much more for what they did. Like I wasn't sure if maybe because you're studying it so deeply, if you kind of, I don't know if you lose the art aspect of it or, but it sounds like it builds for what you see. For me, it becomes a part of this close looking process that, yeah, even if you're studying something that isn't wildly famous, you really feel a connection to the person who made it and the time it was made and all of this this context that happens when you start looking at the materials and how things were made.
Can you tell us a little bit about your postdoc at the Metropolitan Museum of Art? It was living all of my Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler fantasies. <laughs> it was it was glorious. So I, I spent that year working with the Department of Scientific Research, and my focus was on running their scanning X-ray fluorescence system. That system is set up in the paintings conservation area, so I got to be involved in scanning many paintings. But I also was involved in studying numerous photographs, so early photographs, particularly platinum prints, they're made with metals and x-ray fluorescence can can help to explore those. So that was a big project. And I, mean, I also looked at a, a sampling of things from many departments across the museum, of many Egyptian objects. There was a study looking at the turquoise in Egyptian jewelry and finds looking at we looked at Egyptian tomb paintings. That's not something that many people are familiar with, but the kind of Roman Egypt, they would they still made mummies, but rather than the King Tut style, there were these painted portraits that were placed on the mummies. So we, we studied some of those portraits. They're so incredibly beautiful. I looked at some early American furniture. Yeah, uh, many, many different things. Sort of like working in a beam line, but everything was cultural heritage. With the furniture, what was the what was the focus there? What were you looking for? That was furniture that was decorated with a process known as japanning. It's decorated with a sort of a form of gilding, and it wasn't clear what what materials were used to make that, and if there was more than one type of metal powder being used in the decoration. So that's what we were examining. Also, the decoration has a relief to it, and it wasn't clear what layers were in that relief. There was a lot of lead white and a lot of vermilion, which is a mercury-rich pigment. So we were exploring whether we could distinguish different potential layering techniques in that, in that Japaning method. Like I could see a value and important, but could you explain what the reasoning, like what would be the benefit of understanding that then? Greater knowledge is there. Does it then help these people I guess, what does it help them learn? Right. Aside from from just understanding how that specific object was made, often, well, sort of the baseline, understanding what materials are present is often really essential for the conservator to do their work safely. So they, they need to know what material is original and what was added later so that they can conserve the originals. They need to know what right if there's any potential danger to themselves in the materials that are there and also whether something like how maybe how robust it is or how fragile it is um, so that all of this analysis sort of contributes to that knowledge which is one of the reasons that the museum has this sort of instrument in the paintings department scanning the paintings was routine because it, it made it really clear what areas were original and what areas were later restorations, just as a, as an example. I do think about a few different categories that categories of questions that this XRF measurement can help with. And right. One is, one is authentication or, or authenticity. Although 
in order, you know, by the time something comes to the synchrotron, it's usually been studied in a lot of other ways. So it's, yeah, it's basically never the case that we're doing, you know, true or false authentication work. The other, the other types of questions that I think about are revealing hidden features. So if there's multiple paintings on the same substrate, that's one way. I've also been involved in a project where there was a, a book binding that was done with parchment that had writing on it and then was covered over. And so we could recover the text that was hidden in that book binding. So not just pictures, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The other two categories, uh, I think about assessing objects that have changed over time, whether that change is human intervention through like restorations or things like that, or whether the change is due to degradation, like pigments that have faded over time. X-ray fluorescence has been used to look at, for example, traces of bromine in mm -hmm. red pigment that Van Gogh famously used a lot. That red pigment has now faded quite a lot to, you know, pink or even colorless. But if you can map the bromine, then you can tell what was originally this bright red. And then the other category that I think about is kind of matching materials. So if you have, I guess there's a lot of ways to think about that. Either looking at fragments and trying to see if they originally once belonged together. So that's related to the azurite pigment project a bit looking at whether or not you know disparate pages were once in the same book or maybe from the same workshop also looking at um, natural pigments and trying to understand where where those might have come from geographically by looking at the chemical composition and also just grouping mixtures or grouping areas of an object that are chemically similar to one another for example, I've seen, I haven't done this myself, but I've seen x-ray fluorescence used to study like a stained glass window and they can tell which panels in the window were made with the same recipe of glass and which were something else. So that kind of thing. When you were talking about the book binding and how there was a different text that was no longer visible or I understand that there are actually quite a few works that have otherwise been lost, but have been discovered because they were written on parchments that were later scraped clean or repurposed. Indeed, the, the Archimedes palimpsest being a prime example of this. Um, that Are you familiar with that? No, no. That object. No. It's, um, well, it's, yeah, right. So the, I believe the word palimpsest is the term for, for like a reused text. It's where there was a text that's been scraped off and rewritten on. That book, I think if you look it up, it was a not, maybe not super recent anymore, but it was a, kind of one of the first applications that I'm aware of at a synchrotron for doing kind of for recovery of, of hidden information where they, in the conservation of this this book, they were able to it was bound during conservation. They took it apart and they were able to scan individual pages, not at Cornell, but in California. How did you find yourself at this crossroads of art and science? Well, everyone I know who works in this area has taken a different path to get here. 
I kind of talked about my story of studying fine arts and chemistry and, and then trying to find a way to bring those interests together. I feel like when I was trying to discern whether I wanted to you know, become a conservator or whether I was going to stay in research science, I talked to so many people in different different institutions in museums and in 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 academia and in conservation practice and just lots of I guess it's informational interviewing but just asking lots of questions about their careers and what they liked and didn't like about their job and what advice they would have for somebody starting out and everybody was so incredibly generous with their with their time and with their encouragement and it's hard to just, you know, identify a single person because I, I feel um, there were many, many helpful conversations. <laughs> maybe I've already, maybe I've already talked about it with that whole story about taking, taking that course at the museum. But that was, that if I had to pick one person, that lecture by, by Peggy Ellis was probably a turning point for me. I, I did want to ask two how do you share your interest in this work with other people? Well, so maybe the the obvious answer is, is through publishing. I do my best to to publish our our findings when when they're finished, when the project is finished. But um, on a more day to day basis, I wanted to say that I think one of the more rewarding things I get to do is work with students being in a university and, and being in this lab is I, I have a lot of opportunities to mentor students in, in independent research projects. And it's such, this field is, has so many rich intersections between humanities and sciences and, you know, engineering and coding and data analysis. There's, there's just a lot to work on. There's always, there's always more work to be done than people to do it. So um, that's that's a really working with students has been a really fun way to to share the excitement about this this field. I find sometimes too the process of explaining something to another person helps to clarify it in my mind or helps me to realize what I value most about about the thing that I'm doing or talking about. I completely agree. It's, it's a privilege to teach and, and thereby teach yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> if people are interested in, in your work, is there a place they could find out more about it? I have a staff scientist page on the Cornell Synchrotron website, and I have some publications linked there. I also have uh, some publications listed on ResearchGate, which is something that a lot of a lot of people in my field use but I would also say that aside from that I'm really always happy to talk with people about this work because I you know I feel like so many people influenced me on and supported me in, in getting here I feel like it's just part of the part of the culture to share information and and discuss freely as much as possible and I, I also know that the chess Facebook page had a really lovely photo of your daughter. <laughs> can, can can you describe that? Yes, they, I believe they were celebrating a day of reading about science 
and they did share a photo of my, you know, one-year-old daughter reading a book called Optical Physics for Babies. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering where you got that book. That was a gift from our dear friends here in Ithaca. They know us well. (laughs) It's been so great talking with you. It has been so much fun talking with you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Enthusiasts Guild. Under our current schedule, we're releasing a new episode every fortnight, but we'll be back next week with a special bonus episode as Louisa shares the secrets hidden in a 19th century painting. If you enjoy our show, please share it with a friend. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at The Enthusiasts Guild, on Twitter at Enthusiast Guild, or send us a message at TheEnthusiastsGuild at gmail.com. Our music this episode is Ashton Manor by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons license.